0: Welcome to Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, Professor of Humanities at Halt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and teaching courses on its history for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab Media production, and the producer for this episode was Wilhelm Schenk. Let me begin on a personal note. Monday morning, 10th of September, 2018. I'm on my way to our campus on Commercial Road in Whitechapel. It's a big day for me, a new academic year, new students, the launch of a new course. In my head, I'm going over my plans for my first class as I climb the steps from Aldgate East Station, turn into Back Church Lane, and in my abstraction, stumble into barriers completely blocking the road. I have found the Whitechapel Fatberg, which has apparently been growing silently beside and beneath my feet for years. Fatbergs, congealed masses of cooking fat and other gunk, have been gumming up London's sewers since the arrival of the wet wipe 30 or so years ago. But this was the biggest ever. According to the BBC, it weighed more than a blue whale and was longer than Tower Bridge. Thames Water spent almost three months attacking it from both ends. One set of power hoses and pneumatic drills beneath Backchurch Lane, another ten minutes walk away under Whitechapel Road. You could watch a live feed of the removal on the company website, and fragments were preserved and eventually displayed at the Museum of London encased in odor-proof glass. A manhole cover commemorating the final defeat of the monster can now be seen outside Whitechapel Station. I had to detour around that strange and disgusting obstacle every working day for 12 weeks so I couldn't help brooding on it. It hit me. London's geography is three-dimensional and the third dimension goes down as well as up. I took weekend walks looking at rooftops to see what I had been missing in my focus on the dizziness of street level. The fatberg forced me to consider the invisible activity beneath my feet as well. This gigantic mass of trash also reminded me that London, birthplace of modern life in so many ways, is still a cultural pioneer. Throwaway culture, things made to be obsolete, began in London with clay tobacco pipes in the early 17th century. They may be the first manufactured product designed to be discarded. It continued with the arrival of newspapers around 1700, with the spread of the flush toilet in the 19th century, with the appearance of disposable packaging after World War II. Shame on me. I hadn't thought about the wastefulness of deep fat frying or condoms or even feminine hygiene products. I'd been living through another round of disposability without noticing. And London was still, regrettably and revoltingly, leading the world. We have edged past the Fatberg and are now at my desk in Halt House East, 35 Commercial Road. There's nothing obviously special about this industrial building, though it has been charmingly adapted for educational use. So let's not look around, let's look back. You won't find Commercial Road on early maps of London. They first appeared in the 16th century and the road wasn't laid out until the 19th. You won't find Whitechapel at all. It is off the eastern edge of those early maps. In other words, in 1600, this wasn't yet London. In the east, the city had barely expanded beyond its Roman wall. Although fragments of that wall still stand a few hundred meters from here, and transport for London certainly classifies this as central, 400 years ago, it was countryside. The neighborhood was so undeveloped that it didn't even have a parish church. The Whitechapel was a satellite of St. Dunstan in Stepney, a kilometer further east. As London expanded after the Great Fire, so did the maps. When this place does appear on them, it is a blank between Whitechapel High Road and a winding track, sometimes named Backchurch or Whitechurch Lane. Whitechapel finally became a parish in its own right in 1673, an early sign of urbanization. And the renovations of our building have revealed another one. Archaeologists of the Museum of London found evidence of a gravel quarry under our courtyard. It was backfilled in the early 18th century and a row of small, two-story houses was built along the lane. Behind them, however, the fields were still there. They might not have been agricultural, They may have been tenter grounds for the drying of newly dyed cloth. Spittlefields, then an important textile district, is just to our north. So our neighborhood was gradually being integrated into the social and economic life of London. This urbanization sped up when the West India docks opened in 1803 and Commercial Road was gradually built to link the new port with the East End the literal edginess of Whitechapel became important. It was strategically placed between the disembarkation point of imported raw materials and the country's largest market for finished goods. And also this relatively undeveloped area was perfect for dangerous and unhealthy industries such as sugar boiling which not only posed a fire risk but also discharged disgusting and toxic fumes. So suddenly This neglected fringe of London became a vital part of a global economy. Cane sugar grown by enslaved people in the Caribbean and shipped 5,000 kilometers to the new West India docks became the basis for a flourishing local industry. Hundreds of refineries appeared in Whitechapel, as did confectioners, biscuit bakers, jam boilers and picklers. The cheap sugar produced in Whitechapel was the basic ingredient in a transformation of London's food production and of Londoners' eating habits. Processed foods were available anywhere. These provided a new cheap source of calories and made seasonal produce consumable all year round. And, of course, they got Londoners hooked on an unhealthy and addictive substance. My obesity and diabetes can be traced through Whitechapel to Barbados. Sugar refining was global in another way too. Most of the workers were immigrants. By 1800, perhaps 25,000 Germans, many of them refugees from religious persecution, lived and worked in Whitechapel. An enormous center of consumption, London pulled commodities in from all over the world. As a prosperous and open community, it pulled people in too. Whitechapel was often their first home. Its edginess, poised between city and port was crucial. But let's get even more local, where I now teach, one of the largest and most technologically sophisticated Whitechapel sugar refineries opened in 1818. Even here at Severn King, this was a dangerous and unpleasant business, involving very high temperatures and toxic fumes in enclosed spaces. The heat source was whale oil, which burns much hotter than coal, but this innovation led to no improvement in conditions for employees. They apparently often worked naked, partly because any comfort of these extreme conditions was more important than modesty, but also to reduce fire risk. One of the chemicals released in the refining process removed human hair, so any fantasist among us can imagine something truly hellish. Just before dawn, on the 10th of November, 1819, the factory became even more hellish. It exploded. The building was reduced to a shell, local cottages were destroyed, and windows in the surrounding streets were blown in. Such accidents were common in the area and the industry, but this was spectacular enough to be reported not just in London papers, but also in the Ipswich Journal, the Leeds Intelligencer, and the Hull Packet. The priorities of the time are revealed in the coverage. Property damage is described in great detail. Casualties are not. In fact, we don't know for sure how many died, and I can find no evidence of compensation paid for death or injury or property damage. Industrial accidents may have been common in Whitechapel, The aftermath of this one was unprecedented. Severed King was insured, but the Sun Insurance Company refused to pay. It claimed that it had not been fully informed about the new processes and machinery used in the plant and that those new processes posed a risk it had not agreed to accept. The resulting lawsuit was a big deal. Law lords acted for both parties and the Lord Chief Justice adjudicated in person. The case is still important in tort law, as it was the first time expert witnesses were paid to testify. And their testimony was crucial. They said that the new processes had not caused the fire, and in fact posed no additional risk. Severn King won the case. The judgment gave the benefit of the doubt to innovators and risk-takers. In its way, it's a small part of the modernization of company law, that made our form of industrial capitalism viable. But in this case, victory was not enough. Severn King went bankrupt in 1829. Our site was sold to John Furze and Company, a brewer who rebuilt from scratch. In 1847, the St. George Brewery, where I now sit, was completed. The design and construction were so innovative that the Illustrated London News ran along a long and detailed feature on the architecture and the brewing process. The beer was made vertically, starting on the third floor, with raw materials stored in the attic above. The huge mash tons where fermentation happened were on the second floor, bottling was done on the first floor. The finished product was stored in a warehouse next door where our students now eat pizza and play table football. This vertical process meant that the upper stories bore enormous weight, so our floors are uniquely designed, heavily reinforced, and listed by English heritage. They're supported by enormous cast-iron pillars. The ones in the basement are so stumpy that they look as if they've been squashed by the sheer weight of beer above them. But, sweetly typical of the time this, they all have classical capitals, as if we were in some industrial Parthenon. A building like this could not have been possible a generation before. The cutting-edge cast-iron technology would have looked shockingly innovative if it had not been concealed beneath a layer of neoclassical decoration. The brewery specialized in two products, each serving an important part of Victorian London's economy. One was Porter, the dense, dark, traditional brew of the London working man. The other was an innovation, India Pale Ale. This light and hoppy drink was the first bottled conditioned ale. It was designed to mature on ships carrying it to India where it would then quench the thirst and ease the homesickness of British troops. The brewery catered for an enormous market on its doorstep. By the 1840s, the largest and the richest city in the world, it also supplied and profited from the most extensive empire ever seen. Whitechapel was the perfect place for this kind of production. Raw materials were easily brought from the docks or directly from the hop fields of Kent, and clean water could be piped from springs to the north. Porter was supplied to pubs, opening in the new working-class neighborhoods of the East End, and IPA was sent down commercial road to the docks. Edginess, once again, had great practical advantages. But by the end of the century, The brewery's methods were no longer innovative, and thanks to trams and railroads, Whitechapel was no longer on the edge of London. It closed in 1899, and the building was bought by Johnny Walker to serve as their London bonded warehouse. Magnificent fortified doors show quite how desirable the goods stored here were, and perhaps how unwilling the locals were to meet the price. Thirty-five commercial roads survived the Blitz, battered, but not significantly damaged. But by the time Johnny Walker gave it up in the 1970s, the neighborhood had deteriorated badly, and despite the addition of a brutalist concrete wing, it was abandoned. The building's last incarnation before Holt found it was as a venue for squatters, ravers, and underground recordings. The gorillas made their first record in the basement, and there's graffiti by stick in one of our ground floor doorways. This illustrates the continuing transformation of Whitechapel, and indeed of London as a whole. Our city is really now much more likely to export pop culture than beer, and it's typical of the East End that a triple platinum album emerged from an abandoned building. You can find a lot of history at 35 Commercial Road, The building has been here for over 170 years, and its function has changed repeatedly as the neighborhood and the city have changed around it. In most senses, this is no longer the edge of London. But Holt chose it for its location between the two financial districts of Docklands and the city, and because the neighborhood remains resolutely unfashionable and therefore a bit of a bargain. So 35 Commercial Road continues to be edgy, Its location near the city, but not in the urban center, has long shaped its use. Halt is typical in another way. Our students come from over a hundred countries, many of them former British colonies, so the building's links with the wider world are as strong as ever. That's enough for now. In our next episode, we'll look at the view from my office windows. I hope we meet again then. SideStreets is a Black Lab media production written and researched by me, Alan Hertz. Producer was Wilhelm Schenk. To find out more and see some relevant pictures, head over to our website, sidestreets.co.uk.